Video. You know you need it. You know it's all but expected from Gen Z at this point. But you've got no time and little budget, and your Marcom department is two months late on those new program brochures they promised. So asking them to help with a video? Forget it. But what if video could be as simple as sending an email to a prospective student? Meet GoodKind, a video engagement platform designed to make each one of your prospects feel like they're getting the extra special treatment. As an enrollment manager, you're competing for attention. And in a sea full of static, boring HTML emails from other schools, a personal video is how you stand out and drive action. With GoodKind, you can bring your university, faculty, and students to life by designing an engaging, hyper-personalized, and video-first communications journey. Increase applications, increase yield, and decrease melt with the power of GoodKind. Visit wearegoodkind.com forward slash enrollify to book a demo and see just how powerful video marketing can be show your face show you care see the difference connection makes at wearegoodkind.com forward slash enrollify who we were prior to the pandemic and the perspective that we need to get back to whatever that was we need to have that number of apps we need to have course enrollments that look like this we need to reduce the discount down to this, the, you know, that retrospective look at how to manage institutional enrollment is where a lot of places are looking. Recently, we've been having uh, conversations around budget and recruitment budget and putting people back on the road. And, you know, we've gotten several points of outreach to say, well, what's everybody else doing or what were we doing before we had to reduce it down because no one could be on the road instead of saying, In order to achieve the goals that you're trying to pursue, what kind of budget would you need? All right, Rob, we are live. How are you doing today, sir? Doing all right, Zach. How about you? Doing good, man. Doing good. I'm pumped to chat because we've, I don't, this is the first podcast we've done, right? Uh, I think maybe we did one a couple years ago. Okay, maybe we did one a couple years ago. And then we've, we hadn't met in real life until, I guess it was the NAGAP conference was the first time in real life we met. And then I also saw you at the Slate Summit uh, a few months ago. Um, and every time I feel like I talk with you, I just I learn something. I garner a new perspective and insight. Um, and I feel like you just have a, a really unique perspective on um, how folks are thinking about enrollment strategy, how folks at institutions of all shapes and sizes and, and um, situations are kind of thinking about the future of enrollment management, the future of, of growth in higher education a little bit more broadly. So I'm excited to to dive into our conversation because again I just think you're a you're a wealth of knowledge. So thanks for taking time to chat with me. Thanks, Zach. I think you just set the bar way too high. Um, so <laughs> listeners, please reduce expectation. Ah, uh, no, no, you're 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 great. Well, um, I wanna I wanna actually kick off. One of my favorite things to do is help people get to know maybe like the personal side of you a little bit before they before we dive into kind of your your professional accolades so you know what's what's something that your your linkedin following right uh those that follow you on social might be surprised to know about rob 
So I was, I actually looked to see if this was on my profile still. Um, <laughs> and it is. Okay. So I, there is a, and it's not necessarily a gap, but it's an overlay where I was a CrossFit coach for several years and still maintain those certifications, ah. uh, which is like completely outside of the realm of having spent time in academia and research and now enrollment management for an extended period. Um, but you know, frankly, if, if I got hit by a lotto ticket tomorrow, it'd be where I'd be spending my time is just running a gym and helping middle-aged moms discover the power that they have. Nice. So that's a little bit to the core of me, I guess. Nice. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Have you ever done like the CrossFit games? Yeah. Uh, my wife and I are actually going, there's a, there's a parallel, uh, the rogue, uh, invitational is in Austin in October. So we're, we're flying down in just a few weeks here to do a, a weekend of elite level CrossFit watching. Wow, dude, that's amazing. I, I have like buddies that do it. Um, and every time like there, it's like the, is it always every fall is, is the CrossFit games? Okay. It's uh, every July. So every July. Okay. Not that long ago. Okay. Like July to August. Got it. I always feel like I always get these like, hey man, like yeah, not not gonna go make it to the happy hour. Got to train, you know. Blah. I always start seeing those texts kind of roll in. Uh, I guess it's, I guess it's during the summer when they're when they're prepping. Cool man, that's oh, awesome. Oh, for the for the open. Oh, is that it the open? Happened. Sorry, yeah, I don't know anything about. <laughs> All just average shows shit up. can do the open. That happens now in the winter. Oh, so back okay. Background in February. Okay, so that's that's the, that's for like the noobs. Like anybody can do that. Yep. Okay. Okay. Well, that's probably what they do then. Um, <laughs> uh, well, dude, um, talk to us a little bit about your professional career today. Like, give us the Cliff Notes overview. What have you been up to over the past several years? And then I really want to kind of dive into a broader conversation around things that you're hearing from higher education professionals at the moment, but help the listeners better understand a little bit more about, you know, who you are and what you do. Sure. So, I mean, long term perspective, I entered professional world after a, a multiple failed effort at uh, PhD programs. Ultimately, I came in as an enrollment management consultant. So okay. a little bit over a decade ago, I joined human capital research for a couple of years. And that's where I learned about the enrollment management space, hmm. data analytics in that space, financial aid leveraging. I did a little hopping around after that. I spent a little bit of time on a campus. I worked at a nonprofit. And then before I came back to enrollment management, I spent a couple of years in corporate market research. Okay. Um, so qualitative and quantitative data analytics work with the likes of Coca-Cola and Dr. Pepper Snapple Group, Ford, United Healthcare, um, getting a really good understanding of the consumer voice and the degree to which that tends to drive many large-scale organizations, mm. whether or not it does higher ed. Huh. Um, and then five years ago, I rejoined the, the ranks of the enrollment management world with Whiteboard Higher Ed um, based out of Philly. And I rebuilt their analytics team there with Bijan Warner over about four years. Okay. And eventually I took over as the executive vice president of client success. Um, so overseeing all of the lines of service there. And then as of December 1 last year, Whiteboard got acquired by Huron Consulting Group. Yep. Chicago. Yep. And so now I'm a managing director on the student strategy team. Okay. Where we do all of the things that were whiteboard, but touch every other piece of the enrollment funnel. And Huron does many, many more things in the higher ed space from technology implementation to strategic planning uh, and acquisitions and mergers and the like. Dude, that was an incredible Cliff's Notes overview. Well done. I think I think that might be the best in terms of like succinct, but also like 
very informative um, that I've that I've received at least in a while. So well done. I like that. I've been practicing every day <laughs> in the mirror. Yeah, you just wake up and you practice your 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 overview. Um, quick question, just because I'm curious, how much like how much this would Coca Cola spend on like a like roughly like on like a if they were if they were trying to research design let's say they're designing a survey for a particular like customer segment like roughly what are they spending on that to to your knowledge and then like how long does it take to like design the survey i i have to imagine it takes a while given the the size of the brand but um yeah any anything you can share on those two questions so yeah so it it's incredibly interesting there is a segment of like the consumer packaged goods, which is like Coca-Cola yep. that does very short pulse survey kind of, this is going to cost $20,000 and we're going to get it done in six weeks. And you'll get like a test of what the market wants to know. And then there are several hundred thousand dollar versions of research where we can do a large scale survey. We're going to do a socialization component where, you know, at the company I was at, we would do uh, physically built in placements at headquarters. Huh. So like you're going to go through this experiential delivery of what the consumer experience is with whatever Sprite zero. I don't know. Um, and so there, there's such a wide breadth. Sometimes it's, it's going to take six months and it's going to cost a couple hundred thousand dollars. And sometimes it's going to cost $15,000 and we're going to survey a group of people we already know. Yeah. And we're going to get you a quick pulse on what's going on in the market. Hey, all Zach here from Enrollify. If you like this podcast, chances are you'll like other Enrollify shows too. Our podcast network is growing by the month, and we've got a plethora of marketing, admissions, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks that are all designed to empower you to become a better higher ed professional. Our shows feature a selection of the industry's best as your hosts. Learn from Mickey Baines, Jeremy Tears, Jamie Hunt, Corinne Myers, Jamie Gleason, and many, many more. You can learn more about the Enrollify Podcast Network at podcasts.enrollify.org. Our shows help higher ed marketers and admissions professionals find their next big idea. Find yours at podcasts.enrollify.org. What was your, did you have like a favorite project you got to work on during that time? Yes. What was it? So I worked with Dr. Pepper Snapple Group, which owns A&W Root Beer. And ah. now it's like Keurig something or another. Like there's a bunch of, they, they all merged together. Uh, but I got to do in-home research on how families drink slash eat root beer floats. What? And so I got to go with like a video crew to a couple of different houses <laughs> and like watch families have root beer float nights where they like rent a special movie and have special snacks and they make root beer floats and we got to interview them and interact with them and just kind of hang out in the back. It was so fun. Dude. Okay. So what were you, were you like looking for, do they put the ice cream in first and then the root beer or the root beer, then the ice cream? Like what, how, like what were what were you looking for? So interestingly in parallel to higher ed, it has almost nothing to do with the physical product and okay. the execution of the product itself it's the experiential component mm. of mm. Well, how does this feel for the family? What does it mean for them? How are they building memories? How do we think about leveraging that knowledge as we're building commercials for these brands? Ah, yeah. Uh, and so that, that, that was really the takeaway. It wasn't necessarily like, 
do they use chocolate ice cream? It was, <laughs> you know, what are the kids doing with mom and dad while they're building the the Rubier floats? Yeah, yeah. Like, does some does somebody make up a or start telling a story? Right. Oh, this yeah. reminds me of Aunt Susan, and Aunt Susan would always give me a root beer float. At, you know, when I came home from school or whatever. So yep. no- notating all that kind of stuff, dude. That is that is a freaking cool job, man. Um, it was fun. It was yeah. really really fun. Ah, uh, wow, cool. Well. That's a nice-ish segue into really kind of the meat of the conversation. So we reconnected at the at the Slate Summit um, a few months ago, as I mentioned, and you were telling me about like you were just like traveling a bunch, and um, you had been on a, a number of different campuses, um, and you were struck by sort of like different conversations folks were having around general um, planning around strategic enrollment, how that looked depending on the the context of the of the institution, and how I think if I remember correctly, you were noting like. It's just so vastly different depending on the institution that you're talking about. And there are some cool opportunities. There are also like a lot of really scary things that are happening right now. So I want to I want to kind of have a conversation about just some of your your observations, your your learnings, your musings over over the last um, several months. And so I, I thought it would be cool if you could just share a little bit of like you know anecdotally like what are what are you hearing on on campuses across the country right now yeah i mean so many things but some really consistent things i think it's a great setup and so i've been spending a lot of time historically i've spent a lot of time with enrollment vps okay but i'm also spending a lot of time with cabinets and boards as well which is a bit of a shift but i think a useful shift as we think about enrollment strategy and long-term planning um, because in many cases, in the enrollment managers in the room will hear this loud and clear that goals, long-term objectives for institutional enrollment are essentially handed down from on high yeah. without a lot of perspective of what's going on in the enrollment space. Sure. The enrollment space, we're all wrestling with staffing problems, um, just broadly the ability to hire people to replace the mass exodus that we've seen over the past couple of years is incredibly difficult and spans enrollment in terms of admissions and recruitment, but also financial aid and marketing. Yeah. Those people are just being snatched up and very, very hard to get people to think about filling in, or they want to do, you know, I want to be a recruiter, but I want to be remote. Um, Good luck figuring that one out in most cases. So I think that's, that's one is there's a lot of plans, but not a lot of resources. Yeah. Not a lot of contextual understanding as you move up the ladder. Yeah. And yeah. so we do a lot of strategic enrollment planning work. We do organizational assessment work and just, you know, helping leadership understand the context that we're, you know, if we're at 2,500 and we want to be at 3,500 in five years, what does that mean? Where do you where do you plan on getting those students from? Are they graduate students? Are they undergraduate students? Is it non-traditional? Um, and people not having their heads clearly wrapped around that. Yeah. And just this perpetual, the admissions and recruitment team will go get us more freshmen every year is not becoming the answer. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, one quick um, thing. I just Sorry to just interject here, but um, no. to validate uh, one of the points you just made about um, – staffing challenges obviously this isn't new people have been talking about this for a while but i i had a i threw out a quick linkedin post yesterday where i, I, I saw that oh okay you saw it. and and honestly dude i have received 50 five zero dms from people right there's a bunch of people that commented and like left like 
you know, they, they tagged people that, that, that I should talk to, but 50 different individuals, right? Based off of that one LinkedIn post, I don't need, it's, been, it's probably just been about 24 hours mm-hmm. who, who are like, oh, hey, yeah, I, I left higher. And the, the post specifically was about like, hey, I want to talk to you if, if during uh, COVID, right, during the pandemic, you were a part of the great resignation and you left higher ed and moved into like a higher ed adjacent company, like a marketing agency or, you know, an ed tech uh, software provider, uh, 50 people DM'd me. Right. Which is, I mean, and it, it's just, it's insane. And they're, they're from all, like all over the place, right? Like all levels, uh, you know, people that were admissions counselors all the way to college, a college president even. So it, it's just, it's shocking. It's like genuinely jarring. If that's like one LinkedIn post, I just, I can't imagine what it actually feels like to be, to be a, a, a leader in, in this space right now. It just must be unbelievably like defeating. I mean, like, how can you focus on enrollment strategy when you're trying to focus on like retention of your, of your employees? Right. Yes. Yeah. I've had, I mean, you know, you won't go down that retention path. We don't have to go too far in this direction, but almost every campus that I've been to this summer, I end up in a conversation about what do we pay our recruiters Mm. and how does that benchmark against what the other schools are paying? And broadly those entry level salaries aren't that much better than what you could get in so many other places. Yeah. And we're asking these people to travel for three, four months in a yeah. row. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that's a, the, something we have to wrestle with. Are you, as you're talking with folks. Um, so I, I also feel like, you know, we're preaching to the choir folks who are kind of listening in to, to this conversation, right. Are probably in a similar situation. They've been, they understand what it feels like for, uh, you know, the highest levels of institutional leadership to come up with a random goal and say, Hey, this is what, this is what we need to hit. Oh. And by the way, like not only do you get no additional resources, but you actually have fewer resources to do this. Right. And it, it really does. It's like, you're, you're, you're crossing your fingers. You're, you know, you're praying for a miracle in, in many cases, because this is just like, a lot of this is totally unreasonable, but I'd be curious, like how, how are people that you talk to, how are they justifying this? Like when, when, when inevitably asked, right? Like, where did you come up with this goal? Right? Like you want to increase enrollment by a thousand in, in, you know, three or four years, whatever it is. Like, where is this coming from? Like when people say that, right. Cause I'm sure that these conversations are happening. Um, what, what is the response? Like how, how are people justifying the goal? So I think much of it is competitive metrics. So you're looking at the next tier institution that you want to be like, yeah, and thinking, okay, for us to be successful in this market, we need to get from X to Y. And I think I know three steps along the way, but not really recognizing all of the contextual, cultural sort of situational differences between your institution and that one. Yeah, yeah. And so it's often a, look, in order to be financially viable as an organization, we have real debt that is going to be recognized over a period of time. We have to address that by growing. Because, you know, since mid-80s, maybe earlier, higher education has functioned on a growth model. There are going to be more high school students graduating. We're going to continue to increase enrollment. We're going to make a little bit more money per student, but not generally all that much more per student every single year. And we're just going to keep building and building and building. Yeah. Um, that is no longer a reality. So we're generally faced with, we're running into a place where there aren't going to be any more high school graduates coming out every year. It's going to be less. Transfer students we thought were the option 
two years ago, but then the pandemic hit, transfer enrollments dropped by 15% and now, or community college enrollments dropped by 15%. And now the two year in community college student who should be transferring out isn't there Hmm. or community colleges are trying to retain them in order to sustain their budgets. Ah, fascinating, fascinating. And so what's the next piece? Graduate enrollment, uh, you know, non-traditional students, all of which present different kinds of quandaries for institutions to address. Yeah. One of the things that I have seen, I know I know a lot of graduate enrollment managers and uh, in, in talking with them, like I would almost expect, right? If I was a, if I was a leader of an institution um, in, in this current environment, I would almost expect to pour uh, significantly more resources into into uh graduate right to and enable enable them with more resources um you know more marketing investment right because it's where we're, we're institutions are going to rely on graduate students more it, it, you know as, as as these numbers uh dwindle on the traditional sort of undergraduate front yep. but but i i don't feel like that's like a common narrative yet like that's not like i'm, I'm hearing a couple like whispers of this happening, yeah. but by and large, I think everyone kind of predicted that oh, grad's going to get this huge influx of resources, and I don't feel like that has been has been true at least in a meaningful way across the board. Have you are you seeing anything different? No, and broadly, what I would say is that you know even if grad got an influx of resources to bring it in line with undergrad, yep, the method of enrollment, recruitment, admissions, and marketing for graduate is so diversified yeah. because you have to speak to specific programs yep, yep. that the resourcing has to be, you know, to the nth degree, as opposed to, we want to communicate a single undergraduate body experience. Yeah. 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 And so even accelerating beyond what you've been doing in the past probably isn't going to get most of these institutions where they need to be. Yeah. So as you are having these conversations, like from, from your perspective, from Huron's perspective, like, where where are folks spending like too much time and like where where are they placing their attention right whether this is leaders whether this is like uh enrollment management leaders at the director of ep level where where are folks spending kind of too much of their time right now um and then and then where are they probably spending like not enough time from again the the conversations and the the examples that uh that you know firsthand so to the first question, too much time being spent. Thought about this because you sent me this question in advance. Thank goodness, because there was a lot to think about here. <laughs> um, but the who we were prior to the pandemic and the perspective that we need to get back to whatever that was. We need to have that number of apps. We need to have course enrollments that look like this. We need to reduce the discount down to this. We, the, you know, that retrospective look at how to manage institutional enrollment is where a lot of places are looking. Recently, we've been having uh, conversations around budget and recruitment budget and putting people back on the road. And, you know, we've gotten several points of outreach to say, well, what's everybody else doing or what were we doing before we had to reduce it down because no one could be on the road? Instead of saying, in order to achieve the goals that you're trying to pursue, what kind of budget would you need? Hmm. Which is framing things very differently. And I think, you know, to go to the other side of your question, where should be people, when should people be spending their time is on understanding who you want to be as an institution. Yeah. 
yeah. value proposition. What is your core as, as an organization? I think there were a couple of schools that I work with who through the pandemic, given financial exigency or you know the emergency status of being in the pandemic, instead of saying, we're just going to throw money at everything, said, these are the five things that we've been doing and haven't been doing well. And so we're going to stop and we're going to focus on our core and we're going to differentiate ourselves from the market. And we're going to try to really drive after that. And not that many institutions have been willing to do that, but I tell you the ones that do it well have a very different presence in the market and have the ability to attract a broader pool from a broader geography, have people who are more willing to pay because you aren't a commodity anymore you know, we're not looking at, you know, getting a standard BA from private college, wherever. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that that's, that's a really keen insight. And I feel like depending on the institutional leader that you talk to, this idea of like core values and positioning and brand promise, right? These, these sort of seemed like fluffy, um, you know, uh, idealistic things, th- yeah. things that like, yeah, so-and-so came in, we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this like you know new slogan and you know now now we're where innovation meets tradition or something vague like that right mm-hmm. um and 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 i feel like up until maybe this 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 moment um there there has been skepticism about kind of the value of these things but but i do think and i'm glad you brought this up because it's it is similar to what i'm hearing is we're sort of at a reckoning point where where folks are saying Whoa, 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 wait a second. If we get the cabinet in a room and we all can't in in unison, right, agree on our brand promises, agree on our value propositions to this to this market, right, to, to our constituencies, then of course we have a problem. Right? Like if if yeah. the if the if the stakeholders, right, at your institution in the highest levels of authority can't can't even come into an agreement, right? Uh, about why you're there and and what you're doing it's it is just going to be incredibly hard to compete when again right like the supply isn't what it used to be at least the the traditional supply and i feel like what i get excited about is i feel like the schools that do take this very 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 seriously and invest the resources that it takes to do it well they will have an unbelievable opportunity because the vast majority of institutions, unfortunately, probably won't be able to get their shit together in order to do it in time. And that's very sad and very hard to say, but it's, I I don't know. I, I feel like it's at least pretty close to the truth. Yeah. No, I mean, take it out into the broader consumer marketplace. Like, think beyond higher ed. What are the brands that are doing incredibly well in the market right now? Yeah, Patagonia is one that sticks in my head all the time. Yeah. Core value statement. Yep. Like independent of product, you have people that are going to go buy Patagonia goods because it's Patagonia and they stand for something. And particularly the generation that we're trying to recruit into colleges is very invested in brands that take a stand for something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gosh, and and I, I feel like, I feel like you see some of this language and some of this positioning, but it's it's still like somewhat like watered down or, or too general, right? I read a super interesting statistic actually um, the other day, and I need to find where I read this. I think it was someone posted this maybe on Twitter or something, um, and they were talking about how like in uh, more obviously like more more rural uh, areas when they were serving 
um, students about sort of like, hey, like, you know, why, why aren't you considering? And th these are like traditional age students and or even like, you know, uh, they're 24, 25, right? So maybe maybe they're um, uh, you know, adult students, depending on how kind of how you think about it these days. Um, and they were serving them. They're like, hey, like, you know, why why not go pursue you, your bachelor's? Um, and one of the incredible, incredibly interesting insights, at least to me, um, from what this survey yielded was that a lot of these these students felt like because of um, because of how political higher education can be and how vocal many institutions uh, you know can, can be, they felt like oh my values would not be represented there, and so they they almost felt like oh because of my political views right. I can't go to school. I can't go to higher education. I can't. I can't go there. And I thought, like, how provocative. Like, well, you know, again, I, I should be very careful with what I'm saying right now. But like, I, I, I do believe, like, there's this opportunity. Like, who, who is targeting the students that are cognizant of this and and worried about this and and wondering whether or not they'll fit into an institution with incredibly po politically liberal values, right? Um, and again, maybe if you're an institution that that isn't isn't there maybe this this presents a real opportunity for you so um i i just feel like there there are these there are these like really really clear opportunities but i don't think they're going to be taken advantage of without like a deep soul searching at the institutional level and i don't know like are we going to be able to do that rob are schools going to be able to do that i think so i mean you know i've spent enough time with leadership at a number of institutions and sometimes it comes from pain right mm. so we've we've lost traction in our market enrollment has started to decline retention is falling off and as we're you know we do surveys of admitted students we do research with uh, attrition and you're just finding out that these students have no connection to the institution and you know what you're offering and the first response is generally well, go Go out to the market and find out who they want us to be. And yeah. then you know, the, the model for the last 20 years has been like, and then we'll add that on to all of the other stuff that we already do. <laughs> We're just going to become yes. the Walmart to everyone. And it it has completely lost connection because then your neighboring institution winds up looking very similar yeah. because they're leveraging the same you know development strategy. But at the places that have gone through some of this pain and watching how good leaders, thoughtful leaders will try to drill down to who their institution, I had a great conversation with uh, one, of, one of my VP partners uh, when I was on campus a couple of weeks ago and talking about the person that founded their institution and yeah. the degree to which that private religiously founded institution was developed in the intent to serve the community surrounding the institution hmm. and how the programs that came out of the foundation of that institution were very service oriented, social work, nursing, education, and how they kind of lost that track over time, but how there's a huge value proposition in going back to that core yeah. yeah, and thinking about, look, if this is who we are, if this is what we were founded for, if this is the commitment that all of the faculty and staff and board members have taken, to be representatives of that brand, then let's, to your point, let's make that pervasive across the entire experience. Yeah. And I guarantee that's better for connecting with families than saying you can get a BA here. Yeah. 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 And, and I feel like, again, from a society standpoint, uh, a little bit more generally, 
you ju- you just think about sort of like the brands that have developed, right? In in really sort of the the, the consumer brands that have developed over over recent years. Like I, I, I think about like tra- like I like to travel a lot, right? So I, I'm always like looking for like cool suitcases or, or travel bags and whatnot. Um, and if, like my wife, for example, is was like very interested in trying to find like a, a a suitcase that was like sustainably like sourced, but also like really like well designed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she found this company called Paravel, and like Paravel is like very clear on what it stands for it's you're paying a premium to get access to this to this suitcase right like they are not worried about like you know to me or they're not they're not worried they're not trying to be sort of like this like luxe brand that has a plethora of offerings they have two suitcases right they've got like Mm -hmm. a a small one and a large one right well a carry-on size and a check bag size and that's that's it but they do those two suitcases so freaking well and the way that they've sourced it, the way that they've designed it, the way that they market is is targeted towards people like my wife who care about these things, right? And 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 like they're not crying, right? Like like they will. Yep. Pro- I'm sure they'll expand over time, right? Like this is that they're they're new uh, in the space, still trying to figure things out. But like that is very niche positioning. They're they're not worried about like what the Walmart generic brand of suitcase is doing. They're not trying to compete with that. And they're, again, they're not trying to compete with other other like you know luxe brands. They're really focused on designing the perfect, right, sustainable carry-on for, you know, millennial women, right? Like, like that, that's kind of their focus, and and I feel I feel like for for so long, and I, I do believe that this is is probably rooted in in real goodness, which is like this desire of higher education to be like this beautiful, accessible thing for for everybody. Like we we want to be this like very inclusive, very supportive environment. Um, but I, I think, and, and I think we still can and should be those things. But yes. right, it it's it we we are kind of in this moment where like yes, okay, we are those things. But for but also for for students that are interested in these three things or these you know six things, because we actually have the resources to deliver success to these students in very meaningful ways. Whereas if yes. we tried to add tracks four and five and 18, right? Ooh, I don't know. I don't know that at least today, I don't know that we have the resources to effectively service students who want to opt in for that path as well as we can for students that opt in to pass A through B. Yep. And I think if we think about the family's perspective on it, you know, the thing that I hear just clearly and consistently communicated to institutions is we want to know the ROI for our investment. Yeah. Yeah. And when you start adding those marginal programs, large, well-branded state schools, you can add whatever program, you know, if you're an R1 state flagship, you can add a lot of programs and families are going to get a lot of traction out of having your brand on their, their yeah, you know, certificates or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. But for smaller institutions with less consistent brands, your value proposition is truly the things that you deliver well. Yeah, and the family see the ROI for you know if you have a great MFA and you land people in places where they're successful over time, it makes a lot of sense. But if you're just adding an MFA to add an MFA, maybe not. Yeah, yeah. How how else are you seeing folks get creative with their enrollment strategies? Like we we you know we spent some time talking about being highly focused, hyper focused, right on on positioning. But also, like you know, there are, there are other there are other factors here. We and I think we've mostly been talking still, sort of like with a traditional audience in mind. I imagine mm-hmm. you're talking with folks who are 
trying to think about micro credentials or trying to think about like new graduate degrees or trying to think about sort of like, hey, how do we deliver better success to non-traditional uh, learners, right? Or, or even as we would, just, you know, we call them here on Enrollify, just like like the modern learner, right? Which is like uh, not necessarily a 17-year-old. How, how are you seeing, or maybe a better way of framing this question are, what are some of the, the more interesting sort of approaches or enrollment strategies um, that you see folks thinking through and, and, and planning for? So I, it goes back to the conversation we've been having, which is the places that lean into the strengths that they have and figuring out how to present those to the market in different ways. Mm. So, you know, you talk about enhancing graduate enrollment. I talked about it with community colleges kind of as an offhand note that they've been trying to move in. So I live in the state of Michigan, Michigan granted community colleges the ability to offer bachelor's degrees uh, in certain areas in the past couple of years. Okay. So instead of being a pipeline to a, what would have been a four-year institution, and I did the air quotes thing on a podcast, um, <laughs> they are now retaining those students over time. It's keeping them into a third and fourth year, which is disrupting the industry, but helping them. Mm, yeah. Mm. For your institutions moving down the three plus one, three plus two path in areas of strength, I think is an interesting space. And I've seen it in some traditional, very liberal arts institutions in recent years who would have, that didn't align exactly with who they were at a core, but they had added graduate degrees that related well to some of their undergraduate spaces. And so giving students a path to move into that graduate enrollment. And then I think, you know, one of the things that we should do another podcast about someday is, you know, merger acquisition and partnership in yeah. higher ed. Yeah. And thinking about establishing offerings, establishing funnels, establishing relationships with the non higher ed entities that encourage enrollment in different platforms. So having a partner organization for clinical placements, um, or, you know, if you move into the business space, having, you know, the co-op model and you know, places that do those things really well are not struggling on the enrollment front. In fact, they're, you know, running well ahead of the crowd. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. Are you, are you aware of, um, and, you know, I, I feel like I should know this, but I, but I actually don't like, are you aware of four-year institutions that have like very strong kind of focused pathways to an associate's degree? So not like, not like a community college, but like, Hey, you know, I'm a public, large public institution here. Um, but, and you, you might not want to come and get a bachelor's here and that, and that's totally fine, but you can also in, in a couple of years, you can get your associates in X, Y, or Z. Is that a strategy or a play that you're seeing folks like really lean into or, or not so much? So not historically, you know, I've worked dozens and dozens of institutions. It came up once with an institution over the summer this year. Um, and you know, I jokingly referenced my experience in graduate school where, I approached two PhD programs and I got a transitional master's in both of those places, which I get to put on my resume, but I never finished my, my graduate experience. I don't see many four years offering that same, like, yeah, that pathway. You know, here's a, you got past the post. <laughs> yeah. Here's an AS. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I do think of it. And so I think of it from two perspectives. One, you know, we're giving students, we're seeing a lot of first to second year retention fall off at a lot of places. Like those numbers have fallen pretty significantly over the past couple of years, because maybe at the end of your first year, you look and say, man, I'm going to do this for three more years to get anywhere. 
the finances are difficult. My experience is difficult. You know, we have a lot of problems around, you know, mental health and higher ed and lack of support. And so instead of sticking with it, you drop out. But what if you put, you know, a second target in the middle and said, look, if you stick with us for one more year, you're going to get something. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's an interesting thought. The other side is the struggle that we have with transfer. So there's so many articulation issues. I mean, schools are trying, but frankly, the effort just isn't nearly enough. And you have to integrate faculty and you have to integrate, you know, broader leadership into getting those things done. And sometimes it's just far too hard. But there's some schools that are set up to essentially grant you a uh, associate's degree upon entry or, you know, after you complete some courses which then serves as the basis for the BA yeah. or the BS, which can be, that's an interesting way to think about, you know, setting up that process. So now we're not trying to do course to course alignment. Instead, it's all right, you're halfway finish. Yep. Yeah. That's yeah. I, I feel like that's like an underutilized, I mean, I'm sure there's some, you know, red tape thing that I'm not aware of, which sure. makes all this impossible. But like, I, I feel like, I feel like that's like a pretty like obvious and, and, you know, relatively um e- you know e- easy to execute in in the sense of like i think that would make sense i think that would be attractive to students especially those that are on you know the the edge about whether or not they want to go to college at all right and and might not want to have to like well if i do start at community college and then i have to make all these friends then i have to transfer i don't like I, that's too much maybe i just won't go at all maybe instead of like hey no go try this out um if, if it doesn't work for you after two years you at least get this hey best case scenario does work for you you love it you make all these friends right like you you meet these great professors and then you stick around for another two years and get your bachelor's um Mm -hmm. so it'll be interesting to see how how folks sort of evolve and 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 whether or not that's a serious strategy that um that that people lean into yeah it's interesting i mean you mentioned micro credentialing earlier when you think and i'm as much a budgets and a finances guy as i am a marketing and enrollment guy and the limitations on those things is, okay, if we, if we want to get to an equivalent FTE in terms of, you know, net revenue, what's the volume yeah. that we have to get to, to get there? You know, if you get one student to do one micro-credential course, great. You know, we had more heads in terms of, you know, number of people engaged with the institution, but broadly, we're going to have to scale that at a very rapid clip in order to make it financially viable. In, in turn, when, when community colleges, um, and I'm sure that this is a little bit more complicated at like the public level, but like for, for like private schools, right? If, if private, if a private school has a relationship with like a, a community college, is there, um, are there any kickbacks like financial kickbacks? So like if I, if I'm a private institution, right. And I go to this community college and say, Hey, for every student that graduates with their associates from your school, that then you send on to complete, complete their bachelor's at my school, I'll give you, you know, 20% of their revenue for the next two years or something like that, just to help like them grow, you know, their, their offerings and whatnot. Does, do models like this exist? That would be legal. Okay. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I guess because they're state, they're publicly funded. Yeah. Like that. Um, But, uh, but I do wonder about uh, fair market policies and whatnot. (laughs) It's probably, probably a terrible idea. Probably going to get canceled after this, but no, but, but I, I feel like, I feel like, like there have to be, and I guess that like that's the other thing, right? It's like, yeah, how do you and, and maybe maybe it's like, hey, these are our member schools and the, the, the agreement exists across the board, right? But there have to be there have to be models like this that people start thinking through and entertaining. Like the this idea of, 
you know, partnership models or, or revenue share models, like folks have to get serious. Like we're, we're, we're in like a dire situation, like forget like what, you know, was done or, or, or legacy or tradition whatnot. Like I I do feel like there's gotta be folks that are thinking about like rewriting the rules so that some things like this can, can happen. So that in, in, in the example of the community college, right? Like, Hey, yes, you know, maybe maybe they'll stop trying to retain the students as opposed to send them to the four year degree if they can be assured that, hey, we're going to get some resources to continue to build out our programming so that we can continue to be attractive at the associates level. Yeah, I think that it's a really interesting perspective. It definitely takes me back to that uh, merger and acquisition and partnership space. Yeah, Yeah. Right. And the place that, you know, my big push coming from the business world is that higher ed perspective on merger and acquisition is broken. Hmm. So uh, Jeremy Wolos, who's a guy at, at Huron, wrote a great Inside Higher Ed article a few weeks ago about in the degree to which the fact that merger and acquisition in higher ed at this point is only about distressed assets. Hmm. Only the institutions that are about on the brink and will not remain open are the ones shopping for someone to pick them up. The institutions that do what you're speaking to, which is identify partners who are successful in a space that they're not currently operating in and then establish a formalized relationship, whether that be a merger and acquisition where that's a formalized partnership becoming a system. Um, that's where you get, you know, two plus two equals three. Yeah. 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 Or two plus two equals five. Five. Yeah. <laughs> bad math there. But, and, and you know, what's so funny about that, which I, I hadn't even thought about until this moment. Um, I'm glad you, you brought this up, Rob is like, in like the business world, right? Like mergers and acquisitions are celebrated, like yeah. uh, you know more often than like it is exciting. Like if you can get acquired, right? Like as a company, as a young company, like that is amazing. Like that's what you want to do. That's what founders are building for, right? And same mm-hmm. thing with mergers. It's like you know, it's it's oftentimes like a very very good exciting thing. And yet, like in higher ed, it's like it's like oh no, like yep. they failed. Mm-hmm. They failed, yep. and now they have to merge. You know, yeah. and it's just it's just so funny culturally how we think about these things. It's true, true, and I I truly hope for a mentality shift there because that is going to be the way that some of the winners win even more. Yeah, uh, over over the coming decade, hundred percent, hundred percent. Rob, as we as we wrap here, um, any any just kind of final like words of wisdom or or um, words of hope or uh, encouragement for folks tuning in who are in a position right now where they you know, have been handed down this pretty unreasonable goal from the powers that be, and they're interested in like, all right, how do I, how do I make the most of this? Like, how do I set myself up for, you know, the greatest possible success um, in light of limited resources, limited time, you know, unfair expectations, yada, yada, yada. I mean, I think you know, the biggest point of hope is that you know, I'm going to knock up some wood here, um, but a reading survey output from our different clients and from students. And it seems like the influence of the pandemic on enrollment is starting to really taper off. You know, less than 15% of people even thinking of it as a point of consideration. And so the recruiters and the marketers and the admissions crew are getting back to what they're good at. Yeah. Yeah. We were really in a dark time for a couple of years where you couldn't get into the high schools. You couldn't, students had to wear masks and be behind plexiglass while going around campus. And we had to have them in small groups. Um, you know, it's an exciting time for me to see students getting back on campuses and seeing on campus, you know, real large scale experiences. Some of that excitement is coming back to higher ed. 
Uh, and so I think there's really some hope out there. Uh, and it's just leaning into, you know, what, what you're truly good at and reconnecting with those families and kind of building upon it. Yeah. 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 I couldn't agree more. I feel like, um, my, my hope is that folks walk away too, just with this creative zeal of like, Hey, look at the end of the day, there's a ton of opportunity with, with great pain, with great struggle presents incredible opportunity. And it really is just about like, who are the leaders that are great? They're going to muster up the vision and the courage to think differently, you know, uh, think, think radically, um, and, and be willing to just not make these small tweaks, right? Like you, you can't yep. just like move the needle a little bit and then expect like incredible change, right? You've got to, you've got to freaking like get a different needle in, in some cases, right? Um, so I think there's for the, those that are committed, those that are, the, those that are in the game, there's just remarkable opportunity. Um, but Rob, if folks want to learn a little bit more about you and, and uh, the great work that Huron does, like what's the best place for them to get in touch? Um, so Zach, you can put my email on this thing if Perfect. you want. Uh, but hcg.com, huronconsultinggroup.com uh, is our core website. And then you'll have to drill down for me or find me on LinkedIn Wonderful. perpetually on the internet. <laughs> yes. Yes, like too many of us. Um, great. Well, we'll link all those, uh, your LinkedIn profile, your website, your email, all that fun stuff in the show notes. If you want to learn a little bit more about Rob and what his team are up to, um, please just scroll down and give him a, give him a, um, what am I looking for? Send him a DM. That's that's what I was looking for. And um, come find me at NACAC. I'll be at NACAC. And come find Rob at NACAC. Yes, I will not be at NACAC, which I'm really sad about, man. But um, well, hey, dude, this was a lot of fun. Let's do it again sometime. All right. Appreciate it, Zach. Hey, y'all, Zach here from Enrollify. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Enrollify podcast. If you like this episode, do us a huge favor and hit that follow and subscribe button below. Furthermore, if you've got just two minutes to spare, we would greatly appreciate you leaving a rating and a review of this show on Apple Podcasts. Our podcast network is growing by the month, and we've got a plethora of marketing, admissions, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks that are all designed to empower you to become a better higher ed professional. But Enrollify is far more than just a podcast network. Enrollify is where higher ed comes to learn new marketing skills, discover new products and services, and find their next job. We're a growing learning community of 4,000 members, and we'd love to welcome you into the fold. You can access our free blog articles, newsletters, e-courses, and more, or purchase our master course on how to market a university with Terry Flannery at enrollify.org. We look forward to meeting you soon and welcoming you into the community. Again, you can subscribe for free at enrollify.org.